Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. At the end of the previous podcast, we left King Håkon and his government in the tiny crossroads village of Nybergsun, deep in the forest of Trisil, not far from the Swedish border. The German elite soldiers, once they broke through hastily erected barricades, would have little difficulty in finding the group. And neither did a journalist from a leading Swedish newspaper. Across seven columns, he reported, King Håkon, Crown Prince Olaf and the Norwegian cabinet are again being hunted from place to place by German bombers. Wherever they come to rest, they are followed by air raid alarms. And it was a totally exhausted monarch that was finally forced all the way to the Norwegian-Swedish border. Not even here did the monarch, who is being hunted like a wild beast, find any rest. Despite the physical strain, he has kept his good mood. But he said to our journalist, I'm totally worn out by her lack of sleep and rest and the nervous strain. Since I left Oslo, I've not been out of my boots and have hardly slept a wink. It seems to me like civilization is breaking down. Nowhere is safe for me anymore. Let's quickly recap the main points from the last podcast, which covered the German invasion on the 9th of April 1940. In the early morning, German ships attacked and took control of all major ports except Oslo. Due to the sinking of the flagship Blücher in the Oslo fjord, the occupation of the capital was delayed by several hours. This allowed the king, the government and members of parliament to escape. They travelled by train first north to Hamad, then east to Elverum, then further east into the forest wilds by the Swedish border, each time compelled to move on by the approach of German soldiers, sent to capture them and bring them back to Oslo. The leader of the tiny fascist party, Vidkun Quisling, seized power in a coup d'etat. The Germans knew nothing of his plan, but Hitler thought they could use Quisling to their own ends. Early on the 10th of April, King Håkon was woken and informed that a meeting had been set up between him and the German envoy, Kurt Breuer. It was to take place back in Elverum, the small town they had fled the previous day. After the last few days, thundered Håkon, he's the last man I'd wish to see, far less speak with. The government, however, thought Breuer might come with some important concessions, and the party got ready to leave the guest house and travel back west. Crown Prince Olaf wanted to support his father, but Håkon had every reason to distrust the Germans and said to his son, 
If they disable me in some way that makes it impossible for me to carry out my duties, you must take over and do the best you can. The two men embraced before the cars left for Elverum. In Oslo, it was now the morning after Vidkun Quisling's coup d'etat, and he and his henchmen moved into the parliament building, the Storting, and set up a headquarters. He was having trouble attracting resourceful civil servants to work in his ministries. Historian Odvar Heydal writes, To compensate for this, Quisling, in addition to having declared himself prime minister and foreign minister, also sought to issue orders as Minister of Defence and Acting Minister of Justice. However, he faced the systemic obstruction of regular civil servants who ignored the instructions and orders they received. Throughout these first days of occupation, Hitler was getting disquieting reports of how unpopular Wittgenkwisling was in Norway. Eventually... Hitler listened to the protests and, on the 15th of April, Quisling's short-lived and illegal government was replaced by an administrative council. That still lies a few days in the future. All the same, it's worth keeping in mind that if Hitler had not pushed for Quisling as Prime Minister, the war may have gone quite differently in Norway and in Western Europe. On the 10th, King Håkon and the government delegation arrived in Elverum around midday. After long delays, Breuer finally arrived at the meeting place, the boarding school, and was shown up to the private flat of the headmaster. He was allowed ten minutes alone with King Håkon. During Breuer's conversation with Hitler the evening before, it had been Der Führer himself who had suggested that Breuer get the king alone, for by appealing to his desire to preserve his dynasty, Breuer might drive a wedge between the head of state and his government. So Breuer informed King Håkon that he was instructed by Hitler to inform the Norwegians that there would be no negotiations, and least of all on this point, the king must appoint Vidkun Quisling as leader of the new government. Let me quote historian Alf R. Jakobsen. Yet again, Breuer had misjudged his adversaries. Across 35 turbulent years, this quiet and friendly monarch had been part of Europe's youngest parliamentary democracy. Now he was being threatened and humiliated by a representative for a lawless tyranny which the whole world regarded with fear and disgust. It was a heartbreaking, tragic moment. The aggressor blamed the victim for his own aggression, and that was more than King Håkon could bear. He would later note in his personal diary, The German minister laid all responsibility for war in Norway on me personally. The two fronts had hardened, and Breuer left Elverum with no promises. The king had reminded him that, 
as a constitutional monarch, he had to take the whole issue and place it before cabinet. Around six in the evening, the king arrived back at the guest house in Nybergsund. I want to quote at length the words of someone who was present, Niels Jelmtreit, who was Minister of Education and Church Affairs. On the king's return, it was easy to see that he was deeply affected by the situation in which he found himself, and that the meeting had really shaken him. He asked that the cabinet should be assembled immediately, and that was done. He described what had happened during the meeting, and how he had been deeply disturbed by the cold and arrogant way in which Breuer had presented his demands. Having informed the cabinet, the king said that the matter now lay in the government's hands, and that the reply he would give to Breuer would be whatever response the government now stipulated. However, the king continued, It has made a terrible impression on me that the responsibility for the tragedy that will befall the country and its people, if Hitler's demands are not met, will be placed on my shoulders. And that is a heavy burden, so heavy that I dread having to carry it. The government will make its decision, but my position is clear. I cannot agree to the German demands. It would fly in the face of everything I have come to regard as my duty as Norway's king since I came to the country 35 years ago. If, therefore, the government should decide to accede to the German demands, and I fully understand the reasons why it might, taking into consideration the imminent danger that many Norwegians might lose their lives, then I see no alternative for myself other than to abdicate. Minister Jelmtreit continues. The speech of the king was repeatedly interrupted by tears. It was obvious to all of us that he had arrived at his decision only after enormous trials and inner turmoil. We saw in him the worthy figurehead around which our people could gather in their time of greatest need. We were all deeply moved by the power of his words. Well, the motion was carried unanimously. Breuer's demands would be rejected. If you would like to see the letter that was sent to the Germans, there's a photo on my website. In Norway, it's known simply as the King's No. When, in the autumn of 1945, Quisling stood trial for treason, this letter would be put before him as item of evidence... Number one. The 10th of April, the second day of the occupation, finished with the king and government being spread to various farms around the forested region, so as not to be gathered in one place if there was a German bombing raid. On arriving at his designated farm, King Hawkon was so exhausted, he took the bedsheets out of the hands of his hostess and said he would sort it out himself. As he slept, his guards painted the cars white and trampled escape routes through the high snow around the farm. 
unless I'm very much mistaken, no monarch or head of state was killed by the Nazis during the war. But on the 11th of April 1940, they not only tried their damnedest to assassinate the Norwegian king and his government, but they were also fully convinced they had succeeded. General Falkenhorst, who was in command of the invasion, ordered two bombing raids. The first was at midday, during which the military camp at Elverum was obliterated, the Germans believing King Haakon to be staying there. At four o'clock, a second raid of 19 Heinkel bombers was dispatched to Elverum, and a group of 11 Heinkels was directed to the village of Niebergsund, no doubt because of reconnaissance by a spy plane earlier in the day. Falkenhorst ordered paratroopers to be ready to follow up these raids with parachute drops along the border with Sweden to prevent any of the Norwegians escaping. Despite their precautions to avoid being gathered together at one time, at half past four the king and government were assembled at the dinner table in the Nybergsund guesthouse. Then their pre-arranged alarm sounded, short blasts of a car horn. Let's return to the account by Education Minister Niels Jelmtweit. The first three planes flew in from the west and bombarded us with incendiary bombs and high-explosive bombs along the road leading east. A new wave of planes bombarded the north-south road before a third wave flew in from Elverum, and how there was no let-up in the bombing and machine gun fire. From my hiding place behind a woodpile, I heard the bullets whining past my ears with an incessant piff, piff, and I saw how they whipped the snow up all around me. They were accompanied by the deeper whine of the bombs that thundered into the ground so that everything shook. This was no sort of cure for my poor nerves. One bomb fell 20 or 30 metres from where I lay, spewing earth and stones and tree roots over me. Later I saw that my coat had been burned through in six places, perhaps by acid, and I'd suffered a small burn to my hand. The raid lasted perhaps an hour and a half. When the planes finally disappeared, I went to the wood and found the king, the crown prince and their retinues. They had lain quite close to the road, in the wood and well hidden by spruce branches that had been there since tree felling, but they had not had very much protection. On the snow between King Hawkon and the Lord Chamberlain lay an unexploded bullet that must have fallen from a machine gun belt. The king said, oh, Look at that, a personal message to me from Hitler. In the evening report written up by the bombing squadron, we can read, All houses were set alight, there was no sign of life. One pilot wrote simply, Der Ort wurde vernichtet. General Falkenhorst, on receiving these reports, called off the parachute drop along the Swedish border. There was no longer any need. Everyone had been eliminated.
or so he thought. Astonishingly, the only casualty of this murderous raid was one pig that was hit by shrapnel. I started this podcast with some lines from the interview King Håkon gave to a Swedish journalist, telling him that he was being hunted like a wild beast. But he also assured the journalist that he was not trying to flee Norway. He said, I must stay in my country as long as one inch of it is Norwegian. One week after the bombing of Nybergsund, British soldiers landed on the west coast. For two more months, the king and his government moved northwards from place to place, trying to avoid detection and doing what they could to bolster the spirits of the ever more beleaguered defence forces. At the end of May, the British and French suffered disastrous defeat in France, and, having rescued much of its army from the shores of Dunkirk, the British government decided also to evacuate all its forces from Norway. On the 7th of June, King Håkon, Crown Prince Olaf and the Norwegian government left Norway aboard the British cruiser HMS Devonshire and went into exile in London. As the figurehead of Norwegian pride and resistance, the king's continued work from England was of enormous significance for the people of Norway. And part of that inspiration also came from a famous photograph and a famous poem. The photograph is the one I've used for this episode, and you can see the full picture on my website. This image of King Håkon was taken in Molde at the end of April, the king and crown prince again sheltering in a wood during a vicious air raid. When the Norwegian poet Nordal Grieg, also in exile in Britain, saw this photograph, he composed the following lines. By a birch tree's silver trunk, deep within the forest dark, he stands with Olaf quite alone while German bombers circle. Furrows worn by duty's burden in his face are all his own. The pain, however, is for others. This must be the face of peace, so tired by watches of the night, by foul minds that hunt him, scorn him, yet he finds the will to suffer with all things that beat with life. With the birch tree he is woven, as the dead are one with earth is his soul and Norway one. His pure and fragile manly pain, the birch tree's white and quiet light, are seeing unexpected days, Things concealed and fine are tarnished, things of ruthless hate emerge. Beyond his chafing, naked pain, determination shuts a door. This must be the face of peace, trembling with its tightened sinews, hating deeply all the murder, loving all he must protect. By the birch tree, straight and tall, he stands and stares at things to come. Eagle lonely, 
eagle proud. Next time we turn from the king to the queen of Norway's traditional music, the Hardanger fiddle. But for now, Tusen Tak Vidal to Hörtepo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>